0: Greetings, friends and brethren. This is Dr. Bob Teal for the Continuing Church of God, and I want to go over some things related to uh, a a book we have called *Beliefs of the Original Catholic Church*. And this is uh, this book, and any other book that I may hold up during this particular sermon, are available free online at the www.cco.g.org website. You go under Literature tab at the top, go under Books and Booklets, and uh, various books that we have, including some we'll show later, uh, will pop up. You just click on it. We don't ask for email address. We don't ask for money. We don't ask for a donation. You can just read them. Anyway, this is a, another sermon in our series, and I want to cover some topics such as uh, tradition, holy days, uh ten commandments, uh, clerical dress, clerical titles, uh, celibacy, and some other matters. And a lot of people have certain ideas about the Bible and Christianity. But a lot of times they're not based on not only what the Bible says, but what the early faithful Christians taught and how they understood the scriptures. Now, if we go to the book of Psalms, and by the way, during this particular sermon, I will be uh, quoting scriptures from... Uh, Catholic approved sources, that either Roman Catholic or uh, uh, Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, Catholic uh, sources. So, so if you're one of those faiths, you realize we're not using uh, Protestant translations uh, to mislead you or anything. We're trying to use uh, translations that uh, you would find acceptable. And you say, "What? Well, you're Protestant or your Church of God or or, or whatever." Uh, the basics of what we're going to quote unquote, are consistent with the original text in terms of the uh, Masoretic text for the Old Testament and the uh, Textus Receptus for the New Testament. Anyway, Psalm uh, 118 verse 169 from Dewey Rames Bible says, Give me understanding according to, my, to, to your word. And the New Jerusalem Bible, same verse, says, Yahweh, by your word, give me understanding. I wanted to start off with that because a lot of times people think you should start off with tradition for understanding uh, the Word of God and it's the reverse. You're supposed to understand uh, have understanding according to the Word of God and then that helps you put things like tradition in in line. Now the Bible is clear, for example, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 2, that certain traditions can be fine. Yet those that are in conflict with uh, uh, with the Bible, certainly are not. Let's go to uh, uh, Matthew 15. I want to read something here from Jesus and we'll start in verse 6. This is from the Eastern Orthodox Bible, uh, which for the New Testament is the same as the uh, New King James. Matthew 15, starting verse 6. Thus, you've made the commandment of God void because of your tradition. You hypocrites, Isaiah prophesied about you quite well when he said, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they express adoration to me, teaching as doctrine rules made by men. Now notice what this says. In vain they express adoration to me. So, People say, well, as long as people say, I I love Jesus, I adore Jesus, or whatever, they must be good, or love God. And and Jesus is saying, no, this is vain, useless, because their teaching is doctrine, rules made by men. Rules are in conflict with the Bible, with the Word of God, the place you're supposed to go for understanding. Now, I want to go to Romans uh, uh, 10, verse uh, 2. Now, the tradition-bound people that Jesus was referring to, they had a certain zeal for God, but it wasn't based on accurate information. And the Apostle Paul, in Romans 10, verse 2, said about them, about the Jewish people at the time, he said, certainly, I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to accurate knowledge. And sadly, this is true of many people, as a matter of fact, most people who profess Christ today, but people who are willing to accept the truth, like the Bereans of old, in Acts 17. What they did is they checked into the teachings that went against the traditions of many. When the Apostle Paul was preaching to them about Jesus, he was selling some things that was not consistent with their understanding, their traditional understanding, what they thought the Messiah would be like. But what did they do? They searched the scriptures to see if those things were so. Now, there's a book that I'm going to hold up here called Proof Jesus is the Messiah. And this goes through hundreds of prophecies from the Hebrew scriptures that Jesus fulfilled. And it's likely the Bereans went back and they did that. They said, well, that's a lot of work. The old Bereans were considered more noble, according to uh, uh, God's inspired word, because they went and did that. Hopefully you're not less noble than the Bereans, and you're willing to search and determine whether or not something is true based upon the word of God not just traditions that you're comfortable with, or say, well, this is the way I see it, this is how I feel. Please check it out compared to the Word of God. Anyway, in the uh, late 2nd century, the the Greco-Roman saint Irenaeus, who uh, said he had met Polycarp, he actually said that Polycarp related all things in harmony with scriptures. And he also wrote in his Against Heresies book, he says, Polycarp, and Polycarp, by the way, was a Church of God uh, leader. This is uh, an artist's portrayal of him in a statue. He's a Church of God leader who was uh, ordained by the apostles. And it says, Polycarp was not only instructed by the apostles and conversed with many who had seen Christ but was also, by apostles in Asia, appointed bishop, or pastor, overseer, of the church in Smyrna. He always taught the things which he had learned from the apostles, and which the church has handed down, and which alone are true. To these things all the Asiatic churches testify, as do those men who have succeeded Polycarp down to the present time. Let me comment about Asiatic churches. Many of us in the West, and we think Asia, we're thinking India, China, etc. That's not what they meant here by Asiatic churches. This would be the area that we would call Turkey today. And back then, the area was called Asia Minor. It was a small, little Asia compared to massive, big Asia. And so there are places like Ephesus, Smyrna, um, which are about 20, 30 miles from each other. I've been to Ephesus and Smyrna. But the other churches of Revelation, Uh, uh, such as uh, uh, Pergamos, uh, uh, Thyatira, Sardis, Laodicea, Philadelphia, uh, were there as well. Anyway, so notice it says that the Asiatic churches kept the original faith. And Polycarp had taught that. In the continuing Church of God, we trace our roots through the Bible. We believe the uh, New Testament Church started with the book of Acts chapter 2. But also there were leaders, and the apostles, including people, leaders such as Polycarp and those who succeeded him down in Asia Minor. And we also believe that while traditions are fine under certain circumstances, what do you mean in certain circumstances? As long as they're consistent with Scripture or they don't violate Scripture. Now, Polycarp himself condemned those who accepted human traditions above the Bible. And he figured out by his time many had done this. Now, I'm going to read something from Polycarp's letter to the Philippians. Now this is not scripture, this is a historical reference. But here's what he wrote. For whosoever does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is antichrist, and whosoever does not confess the testimony of the stake is of the devil. And whosoever perverts the oracles of the Lord to his own lusts and said there's neither a resurrection nor a judgment, he's the firstborn of Satan. Wherefore Forsaking the vanity of many and their false doctrines, let's return to the word which had been handed down to us from the beginning. So Polycarp, now he's writing this probably around 130-140. There's an argument; it could be 120 A.D. But that's not that long after the death of the Apostle John, the last apostle. And Polycarp saying, "Look, you got to go back to the Word of God, and that hear these false teachings, these false traditions that are not from the Bible." And that's consistent with what I was quoting at the beginning from uh, Psalm 118. Now, as far as the uh, Eastern Orthodox go in Polycarp, they have a ceremony about Polycarp, by the way. And here's something from their ceremony. It says, as a sharer of the ways and successor to the throne of the apostles. So, in other words, the Eastern Orthodox acknowledged that Polycarp had apostolic succession. And, by the way, so did the Roman Catholics. Okay? Anyway, the Orthodox continue here. Oh, inspired of God, you found discipline to be a means of ascent to divine vision. Wherefore, having rightly divided the word of truth, rightly divided the Bible, you did also contest for the faith, even unto blood. In other words, he uh, stood for the true faith even when they went and killed him. Oh, herio-martyr polycarp, term. Hiero martyr means he was a a, a, a bit uh, a pastor or, or a minister when he was killed. They also wrote, The apostolic prophetic man, the model of faith and truth, was a disciple of John the Evangelist. And Polycarp was a faithful saint who rightly divided the word of truth. Now we have a sermon called, What Kind of Catholic Was Polycarp? Because the East North actually just said, that Polycarp contended for the original faith, yet those who are Eastern Orthodox do not keep Passover in the 14th like Polycarp did uh, and have a variety of other uh, teachings that Polycarp uh, endorsed. It's not that everything the Eastern Orthodox have is wrong, because it's not, or the Roman Catholics or the Protestants, for that matter. But Polycarp rightly divided the Word of Truth and the true Church of God Still does so to this day. Polycarp understood the word of God and taught it. And he refused to accept traditions accepted by uh, bishops of Rome, such as uh, Easter Sunday instead of Passover. Now, I mentioned the Greco-Roman saint Irenaeus. He also blasted heretics who tried to have tradition trump scripture. Now, this is from his uh, Against Heresies, book 3, chapter 2, verse 1. Now all of this is in this particular book, which again you can find online. But I want you to carefully understand what Irenaeus is complaining about the heretics, he said. When they're confuted from the scriptures, they turn around and accuse those same scriptures as if they were not correct. So that's what happens now. We have people these days who say, oh, well you say you're supposed to keep the holy days, and the Bible says this, but that Bible doesn't really say that, but it really does. says, as if they were not correct, nor of authority. They assert that they are ambiguous, and the truth cannot be extracted from them by those who are ignorant of tradition. And that's what we hear amongst the Greco-Roman Protestants. Now, the Protestants, they try to claim, they they really don't do things for tradition. They claim something called sola scriptura, but they don't actually practice sola scriptura. Now, if you're a Protestant, you say, of course you do. I would challenge you to be like the Bereans of old. We have a book, Hope of Salvation How the Continuing Church of God Differs from Protestantism. Fairly thick book, goes through many doctrines and teachings, and also church history, to show, by the way, that the original Christian church had continuing Church of God doctrines, was not Protestant, and many of the Protestant doctrines that Protestants hold to are. Traditions that do not come from the Bible, and when you confront some Protestants, with it, they don't want to hear it. They don't. They don't want to know the truth. But if they truly believe the Bible, you can find this book very, very helpful. At least I hope that they will. Again, it's free. Or CCOG.org. Okay, so here's uh, something else Aaron S. wrote. Says the uh, heretics allege that the, that the truth was not delivered by means of written documents, but via voice. And we see this happening with the, uh, with particularly the Greco-Roman churches. They'll say, well, you know, the Bible says everything Jesus said wasn't written down, and Paul talked about traditions that he taught in person. Therefore, you don't have to just rely on the Bible. Well, it's true that Jesus said things that were not written down. And it's true that Paul taught some things that were not written down in Scripture. But certainly, certainly, you can't hold any tradition that's in conflict with Scripture. Tradition is not on equal footing with Scripture. Anyway, they say, uh, Irenaeus writes, Paul also declared, but we speak wisdom among those that are perfect, but not the wisdom of the world. And the wisdom of each one of them, the heretics, alleges to be the fiction of his own inventing, forsooth, so that according to their idea, the truth properly resides at one time in Valentinus, who was, by the way, uh, denounced by Polycarp, another with Marcion, who was also denounced by Polycarp, and is also, by the way, considered to be the first Protestant by some Protestant scholars. And if you know enough about Marcion, you realize he was not Christian. He couldn't have been Christian and another is uh, Serinthus then afterwards Balasides, or who has ever been indifferently in any other opponent who could speak nothing pertaining to salvation. For every one of these men being altogether of a perverse disposition, depraving the system of truth, is not ashamed to preach himself. So Irenaeus is saying, look, those heretics rose up and by the way, those heretics were all uh, I don't know about uh, uh, Basilides, but all the other ones I mentioned, and I probably mispronounced it the first time I said it, they were all denounced by Church of God leaders in Asia Minor. Now, there was a Church of God leader considered a saint by the Greco-Romans and uh, called uh, of Sardis. He was a pastor or a bishop. And he wrote some things in, a, in something called a discourse, which was in the presence of an... Uh, Antoninus Caesar. And here's what he wrote about religious tradition. Again, a Church of God leader. Again, there are persons who say, Whatsoever our fathers have bequeathed to us, that we reverence. We have the faith of our fathers, they claim. Melito goes on and says, No, it is not well for a man to follow his predecessors if they be those whose course was evil. But rather, we should turn from the from that path of theirs. Now, of course, people think, look, I was raised one faith or the other. Certainly, that was not evil. Well, if it's in conflict with Scripture, that is. Now, we in the Continuing Church of God hold the same beliefs as Melito and Polycarp and uh, other early Christians. Now, something else I want to talk about was uh, the reality Regarding holy days. Now you can go to the Book of Leviticus. I'm not going to go there. You can read Leviticus chapter uh, 23. It says these are the pieces of the Lord. It talks starts off with the Sabbath. Talks about various holy days. There go we go into those in depth in this particular booklet. But if you look at writings, not only the Bible, but early church writings, you will find from early apostolic successors, they and the original apostles all kept, for example. Feast of Passover, the time of Passover, at, at the evening of the 14th of the first month of the biblical calendar known as Nisan or Abib. And having been raised Roman Catholic, I didn't think anything about Passover. That was just a Jewish thing. Later, when I've done research, I found out, according to the Roman Catholic Church, that what they call Easter is supposed to be Passover. Now, if you're Greek Orthodox, or you know Greek, You'll know that the, the Greeks call call it Pascha for Passover, and so there's a universal acceptance among scholars that Passover is supposed to be kept. But when was it supposed to be kept? Well, according to, supposed to be kept on the 14th, and that's something that we in the Continuing Church of God do to this day, and this is not something that should have been changed. The Bible does not say to change it, yet it did. Uh, uh, the Greco-Romans tended to change it. Furthermore, the days of 11 bread and pa- Pentecost were also kept, as we have reports from Aplicrates uh, and uh, Polycarp uh, seem to demonstrate. Perhaps it should be pointed out that the old Worldwide Church of God taught that, quote, "The apostolic church of God kept God's annual." Festivals, And they're correct. The Apostolic Church of God did keep the biblical holy days. Now, as I mentioned before, the Greco-Romans still claim to keep Passover. They don't keep it the same way, and they keep it a different date. And they also uh, keep a version of uh, Pentecost. Now, while some Greco-Romans switched to Passover from being on the 14th to a Sunday in the 2nd century, so obviously for now it's an old tradition, various ones in and out of the Church of God kept Passover in the 14th. The Sunday date was officially adopted by Emperor Constantine's Council of uh, Nicaea in 325. Yet, because many in Asia Minor didn't change, the 14th date was still kept by many, not just in the Church of God, but uh, among the, uh, some of the Greco-Romans, because it was uh, condemned in the Council of Laodicea in 364. There'd be no reason to condemn a practice that wasn't still going on. But they condemned a biblical practice in original Christian belief. Now, there's this somewhat questionable book containing some things that seem to be fantasies. It's called The Life of Polycarp. It's got some truth in it, uh, and it was changed at least slightly in the uh, 4th century. And other scholars, by the way, agree with me that it was tampered with. But it does contain some interesting information that I think is helpful about Polycarp and some of his practices. For example, it specifically mentions the Sabbath, Passover, Days of Love and Bread, Pentecost, the last great day of the Feast of Tabernacles, and it endorsed keeping them. I'm going to read something from some passages from that. It says in the days of eleven bread, Paul coming down from Galatia arrived in Asia Minor, uh, considering the repose of the faithful in Smyrna to be a great refreshment in Christ Jesus after his severe toll, toil. In Smyrna, he went to visit Stratius, who'd been his hearer, and he was a son of uh, Eunice, a daughter of Lois. These are they of whom he makes mention when he writes to Timothy, saying, Of the unfeigned faith that there is in you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, we find that Stradius was a brother of Timothy. Paul then, entering his house and gathering together the faithful there, speaks to them concerning Passover and the Pentecost, reminds them of the new covenant, the offering of bread and cup, and how they ought most assuredly to celebrate it during the days of unleavened bread, to hold fast the new mystery of the Passion and Resurrection. For here the Apostle plainly teaches that we ought neither to keep them outside the season of unleavened bread as the heretics do, especially the Phrygians, but name the days of unleavened bread, the Passover, the Pentecost, thus ratifying the Gospel. Okay, so according to this writing, Look, they kept it, the Bible said to do it, the gospel meaning the New Testament uh, said to do it, and they should do it. Then there's a reference here, i read another reference from here, it says, What must we say that when even he, that's Jesus, was gentler than all men, so appeals and cries out at the Feast of Tabernacles, for it's written, On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. So this is a reference to the Feast of Tamarilus and what's called the Last Great Day. And regarding the Sabbath, now this will come from chapter 22 of the life of Polycarp. It says, In the Sabbath, when prayer had been made, a long time and bended knee, Polycarp, as it was custom, he got up to read. So he was reading the Bible, and every eye was fixed on him. The lesson was the epistle of Paul to Timothy and to Titus, which he says, What manner of man a bishop ought to be. He was so fitted for the office that the hearers said one another he lacked none of the qualities which Paul required in these to care of the church. After reading the instructions of the bishops' and discourses of the elders, the deacons sent the lady to inquire whom they should have, and they said, let Polycarp be our pastor and teacher. And the following Sabbath, Polycarp said, hear you my exhortations, beloved children of God. So we've got this ancient document It says Polycarp kept the Sabbath in the Holy Days. And it should be mentioned that Polycarp of Smyrna in the 2nd century and certain others in Asia Minor into the late 4th century also kept the Feast of Tabernacles there and not in Jerusalem. Now this is confirmed, by the way, from places such as uh, the Greco-Roman St. Jerome, and uh, it's also confirmed by a 20th century Cardinal uh, Danilu, who came to the same conclusion. And I read his, a couple of his books. I have some of his books, so I read them. And Jerome reported that the, the Nazarene or the Judeo Christians of Asia Minor uh, kept uh, the Feast of Tabernacles into the 4th uh, and 5th century. Well, interestingly, the Greco-Roman Bishop and Saint Methodius of Olympus in the late 3rd century and early 4th century, this is before Constantine really gets going, he taught the Feast of Tabernacles was commanded and that it had lessons for Christians. And he tied it in with the teaching of the millennial reign of Christ. He also quotes uh, Proverbs uh, 1.5 about understanding. Anyway, so let me read something from Methodius' is writing called The Banquet of the Ten Virgins, Discords 9. These things foretell the resurrection and the putting up of our tabernacle that had fallen down on the earth, which at length in the 7,000 of years, resuming again immortal, we shall again celebrate the great feast of true tabernacles. For since in six days God made the heaven and the earth and finished the whole world and rested on the seventh day from all his works, which he had made, and he blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. So, by a figure in the seventh month, when the fruits of the earth had been gathered in, we are commanded to keep the feast to the Lord, which signifies when this world shall be terminated at the 7,000 years when God shall have completed the world. In the seventh month, the great resurrection day, it is commanded that the feast of our tabernacles be celebrated to the Lord, of which the things said in Leviticus are symbols and figures. So he's recognizing that yeah, there's stuff in the Old Testament but it's got New Testament or Christian application. Which things, carefully investigating, we should consider the naked truth of itself. For he says, a wise man will hear and increase learning and a man of understanding shall attain wise counsel to understand a proverb, the interpretation of the words of the wise and their dark sayings. That's again a reference to Proverbs 1.5. Methodius said, Whosoever therefore desires to come to the Feast of Tabernacles to be numbered with the saints. So, if you want to be numbered with the saints, you're supposed to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, he said. Did your church teach this? Well, he's a Greco-Roman saint. If you're a Greco-Roman church, your church isn't teaching this, does it? If you're a Protestant, your church is teaching this? Probably not. He also wrote, Whosoever shall not be found decorated with the boughs of chastity shall neither obtain rest because he has not fulfilled the commandment of God according to the law, nor shall he enter into the land of promise because he has not previously celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. For they only who have celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles come to the Holy Land, setting out from those dwellings which are called tabernacles, until they come to enter into the temple and city of God, advancing a far greater and more glorious joy as the Jewish types indicate. For like as the Israelites, having left the borders of Egypt, first came to the tabernacles, and from hence, having again set forth, came to the land of promise, so also do we. For I also, taking my journey, going forth from Egypt to this life, so he's recognizing this life is like spiritual Egypt, and even though he was not a church of God, leader, that's what the church of God we still teach, first came to the resurrection, which is the true feast of tabernacles, and there, having set up my tabernacle, adorned with the fruits of virtue, on the first day of the resurrection, which is the day of judgment, celebrate with Christ the millennium of rest, which is called the seventh day, the true Sabbath. And this is something that the Church of God has done throughout history. I'd like to read something from Transylvania in the 1500s. This is from a Seventh-day Adventist writer, and they don't, the Seventh day Adventists do not keep these holy days. So, this is, this is from, a call, from a book called Sabbatarianism in the 16th century. The Sabbatarians viewed themselves as converted Gentiles, which is how I view myself as well. They held to the biblical holidays. The Day of Atonement was a day of fasting, although they emphasized that penance is more easily achieved by a peaceful and quiet meditation on the law in one's life then by fasting. The Day of Remembrance, New Year, they celebrate in the fall of the year. That would be the Feast of Trumpets. Which was the day on which they thank God, especially for the creation of the universe. Now, related to the first and second century, I want to go to a writing from the uh, uh, Roman Catholic Cardinal uh, Danilu. Uh, John Danilou, he wrote, that the Jewish Christians retain the Jewish feast while giving them new meaning? And the answer is yes. So the Feast of Tabernacles was certainly kept in the month of September by Jewish Christianity as by the Jews. He also wrote, This temporal messianism had a strong influence on Christians in the form of millenarianism, which had its center in the Asiatic environment to which Papias belonged. Papius so Papias was a Church of God leader. Uh, we believe he wrote around 110 AD. He's considered a saint by the Greco-Romans and the Protestants. Hmm. This messianic agitation was connected with the mystique of festivity, which belonged especially or essentially to the Feast of Tabernacles. And others have said, look, the, Feast of, the holy days were kept in Asia Minor and Antioch uh, even later than that including among some of the Greco-Romans. If not, there would be no reason to have condemned them in Canons 37 and 38, the Council of uh, Laodicea in the 4th century. They're also condemned in Canons 69 and 70, the Syrian Apostolic Canon. Then later, councils in Asia Minor and Antioch condemned practices of early Catholic Christians from those regions. Now, John Chrysostom of Constantinople he also condemned the professors of Christ in Asia Minor and Antioch who observed the biblical holy days I'd like to read part of his condemnation this was around uh, this was 386 I didn't write the year down here I should probably put that down here. it said the festivals of the pitiful and miserable Jews are soon to march upon us one after the other in quick succession the Feast of Trumpets do you keep that? The Feast of Tabernacles, the fast. There are many in our ranks who say they th- think as we do, yet some are going to watch the festivals and others will join with the Jews keeping their feasts and observing their fasts. I wish to drive this perverse custom from the church right now. Perverse custom that was the original practice. Chris Hostom writes, If the Jewish ceremonies are venerable and great, ours are lies. Does God hate their festivals or do you share them? He did not say this or that vessel, but all of them together. Now, a lot of Chrysostom's arguments are in error, but he wouldn't be condemning these things if people weren't keeping them. Now, as far as his comment that they should all be together, either all the, he called them Jewish, all the biblical holy days are good or all they're bad, he seemed to overlook the fact that his church was keeping some version of Passover, Pascha, and Pentecost. Which are also those biblical holy days. You say, but they have a New Testament meaning. So do all the biblical holy days. They weren't done away. Again, we go into great depth in this particular book of should you keep God's holy days or demonic holidays. As far as which days are great, remember, Chris Hassan says if uh, their days are great, his are lies. But did Jesus. Say or what Jesus is, Jesus was uh, speaking in John seven, but uh, the apostle John was uh, inspired to record the following. This is uh, John seven verse thirty seven. On the last day, the great day of the festival, Jesus stood and cried out, "Let anyone who's thirsty come to me." So that's in the New Jerusalem Bible it says the great day of the festival now I'm going to read from the orthodox standard bible it says on the last day that great day of the feast Jesus stood out crying saying if anyone thirst let him come to me and drink so according to the gospel John's gospel there is a day that's great and that was part of a day that's associated with the feast of tabernacles we call it the last great day it comes immediately after the seven day feast of tabernacles that's a great day So perhaps ones that are based on paganism are lies. This, by the way, is the back cover of this particular book. Now I want to talk about uh, salvation. I want to talk about something. I'm going to use the Greek term apokatastasis. And I want to read something from the uh, New Westminster Dictionary of Church History on this. Apokatastasis the term refers to the prospect of the final universal restoration of creatures to God. Though over, often equated with universalism, the salvation of all beings, early exponents couch apokatastasis in God's eschatological victory, that's prophetic victory, over evil, which would still entail a purgatorial state. Now, in 1 John 4, 8, the Bible says God is love. We see in Mark uh, ten eighteen God is good. And passage says, Isaiah forty six, nine to eleven show that God is all knowing and all powerful. That being said, let's go to Psalm twenty-eight, excuse me, sixty-eight, verse twenty. Psalm sixty-eight verse twenty. I'm going to first read from New King James. Our God is a God of salvation. Now from New Jerusalem Bible. This God of ours is a God who saves. Now I'm going to read from the uh, Orthodox Study Bible. The God of our salvation, verse 21, our God is the God who saves us. Now I want to read from 1 Timothy 2. You don't have to go there. We're going to read... uh, uh, a little bit of verse 3 and and verse 4 from the New Jerusalem Bible. It says, God our Savior, He wants everyone to be saved and reach full knowledge of the truth. That being said, certainly God of salvation has got a plan that's going to result in the vast majority of humankind being saved. And since God wants everyone to be saved, obviously He's going to give everybody an opportunity to be saved. Now I want to go to John 3.16. I know you may think you know it, and perhaps you do, but I also want to read verse 17. This will be from New Jerusalem Bible. Jesus taught, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have everlasting life, or eternal life. Verse 17, For God sent his Son to the world, not to judge the world, but, th- but so that through him the world might be saved. And it says in Luke 3, verse 6, I'm going to read this from the Dewey Rames. you don't have to go there. It says, All flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now how is all flesh supposed to see the salvation of God? They don't have any opportunity. And it says in Isaiah uh, 52, verse 10, also from the Dewey Rames, it says, And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Now some have called versions of these teachings the age to come. Now that's something as that Jesus talked about in Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke. It's also mentioned in Hebrews, book of Hebrews. Now the word stasis is a Greek term, and it basically means restoration. And it's used in the book of Acts, Acts 3, verse uh, uh, 21. So this is something the Apostle Peter was teaching about, so we're going to go to Acts 3. And I'm going to uh, read it from uh, two translations. uh, The New Jerusalem Bible first. Acts 3, starting in verse 20. Peter taught. And so that the Lord may send the time of comfort, then he will send you the Christ he has predestined, that is Jesus, whom heaven must keep till the universal restoration comes, which God proclaims, speaking through his holy prophets we have a book Sit. Down here, right? yeah. universal offer of salvation where we cite the holy prophets there's a lot of things in scripture people have overlooked because they haven't put them together correctly. But Peter is saying that the mouth of the holy prophets taught these things and I don't remember how many different prophets we have quoted in here from the bible but quite a few. They were teaching this from the beginning but a lot of people have overlooked this. And it was an early Christian teaching. The Apostle Peter is referring to it. Now, I'll read it also from the Dewey Rames. Peter says, starting verse 20 Acts 3, that when the times of refreshment shall come from the presence of the Lord, he shall send him who had been preached unto you, Jesus Christ, whom heaven indeed must receive until the times of the restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all, his holy prophets from the beginning of the world. Perhaps you haven't understood them from the mouth of the holy prophets from the beginning of the world. And this booklet, go, actually it's more of a book, goes into it, again, this is available at the csug.org website. There's hundreds of scriptures go into this. Now, while it's true the Bible teaches all have sinned and will be judged, the New Testament also teaches, now I'm going to quote uh, James 2, verse 13, The uh, Eastern Orthodox Bible mercy triumphs over judgment Uh, the Dewey Rames Bible translates this mercy exalts itself above judgment and as it says in Deuteronomy 4.31 you don't have to go there Dewey Rames says God is a merciful God you can also see that in Hebrews 2.17 so while people will be judged God is more merciful than people think now the Catholic Encyclopedia teaches a little bit about the general subject. Here's what it says in its article, A Name Given in the History of Theology to the Doctrine which teaches that a time will come when all free creatures will share in the grace of salvation in a special way, the lost souls. Now, back in the second century, Church of God, bishop or pastor, Considered to be a saint by the Greco Roman Protestants, Ignatius of Antioch, he exhorted Polycarp of Smyrna to teach that all would be saved. And he wrote in his uh, epistle or letter to Polycarp I entreat you, by the grace with which you are clothed, to press forward in your course and to exhort all that they may be saved. Now, that meant more than just the Jews. And not only just some Gentiles, not only those who are called in this age. As far as being called in this age or not, we have a booklet, Is God Calling You? If some of these things are making sense to you, perhaps God's Holy Spirit's working with you. or she you may have already been called. Either way, you may want to read this and find this helpful to read. Again, available at the ccog.org website. Now, in the 2nd century, Polycarp wrote of, quote, The Prophetic Mystery of the Coming of Christ. Now, there's a mystery of God's plan that many still do not understand. And we have a booklet, by the way, called The Mystery of God's Plan. Why did God create anything? Why did God make you? It'll answer a lot of questions people don't understand. Various mysteries. But as far as the doctrine of having an opportunity for salvation for all in this age or the age to come, I want to read something from the 2nd century bishop-pastor Theophilus of Antioch. Now, he's considered to be a saint also by the Greco-Roman Protestants. In the late 2nd century, he wrote the following. He says, On the sixth day, God, having met the quadrupeds and the wild beasts and the land reptiles, pronounced no blessing on them, reserving his blessing for man, who he was about to create on the sixth day. The quadrupeds, too, and a wild beast were made for, for a type of some men who neither know nor worship God, but mind earthly things and repent not. For those who turn from their iniquities and live righteously in spirit fly upwards like birds and mind the things that are above. They are well-pleasing to the will of God. But those who do not know nor worship God are like birds which have wings but cannot fly nor soar to the high things of God." Thus, too, though such persons are called men, yet being pressed down with sins, they mind grovelling in earthly things. The animals that are named wild beasts, for their being hunted, not as if they had been made evil or venomous from the first, for nothing was made evil by God, but all things good. Yes, very good. But but the sin in which man has concerned brought evil upon them. For when man transgressed, they also transgress with him. For as if the master of the house himself acts rightly, the domestics also necessity conduct themselves well. But the master sins, the servants also sin with him. So in like manner it came to pass, in the case of man's sins, he being master, all that was subject to him, sinned with him. When therefore man again shall have made his way back to his natural condition and no longer does evil, those also shall be restored to their original greatness. I know this is a long, and, it's a, it's, and Theophilus writes kind of a poetic way, but he's saying that those who do not have an opportunity now will have an opportunity to come later. He also wrote, Theophilus, and God showed great kindness to man in this that he did not allow him to remain in sin forever, but, as it were, by a kind of banishment, cast him out of paradise, in order that, having by punishment expediated within the appointed time the sin, and having been disciplined, he should afterwards be restored. Basically, what Theophilus is teaching is that, although God consigned humans to be put out of uh, paradise, that this was for the good of humanity, so that sinful humans could later be restored. In the uh, 21st century, an Italian researcher, a Roman professor, uh, named uh, Ilaria Romali, considered that the passages from Ignatius, and those I just read from Theophilus, supported the idea that early Christians understood apocastasis. Because she wrote, in his letter to the Ephesians, Ignatius describes the destruction of evil and salvation brought about by Christ in strongly universalistic terms. And she quotes it. Every spell of evilness has been destroyed. Every chain of evilness has disappeared. Ignorance has been swept away. The old kingdom is falling into ruin. When God appeared in human form for the novelty of life that is absolutely eternal, what was the establishment by God has begun since then. All beings have been set in motion for the providential realization of the destruction of death. And So after quoting Ignatius, Dr. Romali continues with, this destruction of death is a work of God and the death at stake is not only physical but also spiritual since its disappearance is linked to the elimination of evil and ignorance. And in his writing, Theophilus foretells the final rest of Duration of both humans and animals, their original condition. Theophilus expresses here a notion of apocatastasis. Also, Theophilus, at the same time, interprets the beast as a symbol of evil human beings. And I, I read that uh, to a little bit there here. Now, even though it's not a dogma, the idea that non-elect cr- people who are not called in this age, and again, remember, because it's God calling you, will have an opportunity for salvation after death, it is a hope of both the Eastern and Russian Orthodox churches. And I found that in two uh, Orthodox writings. Now, in the late 2nd century, the Greco-Roman St. Irenaeus of Leon wrote, It is indeed proper to God, and befitting his character, to show mercy and pity and to bring salvation to his creatures, even though they be brought under danger of destruction. For with him, says the scripture, is propitiation. Now, propitiation is a way to gain favor. All humans can have this, who will truly accept Jesus and his sacrifice. Now, Professor Romali brought this out about what Irenaeus wrote. Irenaeus uh, connects this, life will seize humanity and chase away death, and will restore humanity. Likewise, at the end of this, he refers to apokatastasis uh, to the work of Christ, who restores humanity to friendship with God. Humanity will be restored to its original condition prior to the fall, and even to a better state. Yes, ultimately it will be better. As a matter of fact, that is actually part of the mystery of God's plan, is that everything will be better, beyond what people can even conceive of now. And God has a plan to offer salvation to, to all, either in this age or the age to come. Now, a Greek Orthodox uh, writer, I think he's a priest, Andreas Andreopoulos, wrote the following I'm going to read related to the 4th century Eastern Orthodox Bishop Gregory of Nyssa. It says Gregory does not accept the restoration of all and the subsequent forgiveness of all as an inescapable necessity nobody will be saved without going through repentance and by the way that's what we teach cleansing and forgiveness and his view of apocryptostasis is merely the belief that everyone will be able to see truth as it is at the end and everyone will give the chance to repent that's exactly what we teach and this is from again one of the early Greek fathers who's considered by the way a saint by the Greco-Romans and probably the Protestants he understood that all will have an opportunity for salvation and if you don't understand that uh, the book we have, uh, Beliefs of the uh, Original Catholic Church, we go into that in some, di- some information, but way more depth in this particular free book Universal Offer of Salvation. If you haven't read it, I urge you to to go to ccog.org and read it. Anyway, continuing. It says, the restoration of all, however, is a valid possibility according to the church, meaning the Greek Orthodox Church, although not a doctrine, has a special place in the hopes of saints who pray for the redemption of their enemies and express in our hope for the charity of God. So yes, the Eastern Orthodox believe this is a possibility. Some of them taught it. Early Christians believed it. The original Catholic Church believed it. Now, Dr. Ramali from 21st century, she wrote, It clearly emerges that for Gregory... Just as for Origen of Alexandria, the doctrine of apokatastasis is a Christological and, indeed, Christocentrical doctrine. So, in other words, it's a Christian doctrine. In their view, it's a specifically Christian doctrine. That's why Origen was at such pains to distinguish his own Christian notion of apokatastasis from the Stoic. Both in Origen's and Gregory's view, universal apokatastasis is made possible not by any metaphysical or cosmological necessity, but by Christ's inhumanation, sacrifice, and resurrection by the grace of God. The very fact that for both Origen and Gregory, the eventual universal restoration begins with and coincides with a holistic vision of the resurrection makes it clear that their concept of stasis is thoroughly Christian, given the Christian and not the pagan or Uh, Platonic roots of the Doctrine of the Resurrection. So while there were issues with teachings of Origen and Gregory, the reality is, yes, it's a Christian doctrine. It's a biblical doctrine. It's consistent with the Bible as well as early Christian writers such as Ignatius and Theophilus, who were true Christian leaders. Now, it should be pointed out that some have falsely claimed it was Origen of Alexandria who invented this doctrine, but that's clearly uh, erroneous. In his commentary on John, Origen called it so-called apocatastasis, which suggests that other sources had already used that term before his time. In the 4th century, uh, the Alexandrian uh, uh, Didius the Blind also believed in some version of this. And even Roman Catholic uh, Hans Urs Von Bellshazer, and he was named a cardinal, although he died before he became one. Uh, he he had a book titled "Dare We Hope That All May Be Saved," and he laid out biblical and historical positions in favor of such a hope. And that's what this book does, except in more depth and more scriptures. Now, the Catholic Encyclopedia uh, reported apokatastasis. There were individual adherence of this opinion in every century. Okay, why do I say this? Because some people said this is a new Church of God doctrine, something that somebody made up in either the 1800s, the 1900s, or the current 21st century. No, it's always been out there. It's always been in the Bible. And this book goes into more depth. Now, while he's not popular with some uh, Roman Catholics, in the 20 century, before he died in the early 21st century, Swiss theologian and Roman Catholic priest Hans Kuhn wrote something as follows Neither in Judaism nor in the New Testament is there any uniform view of the period of punishment for sin. In addition to statements about eternal punishment, there are texts which assume a complete destruction. And throughout church history, in addition to the traditional dualism, the possibility of annihilation or even universal reconciliation have been defended. So this Roman Catholic writer is saying, throughout church history, his church history or history he thinks is related to his church, people have supported the idea that those, the unrepentant will be annihilated, which is what we teach, and that there will be an opportunity for salvation for all, which is what we teach. And he says, however, the text, scriptural text. Interpreted in detail, the eternity of punishment of, of Hades may never be regarded as absolute. It remains subject to God and his will and his grace. And individual texts suggest and contrast others a reconciliation of all, an act of universal mercy. And that's why I was quoting James 2.13, mercy triumphs over judgment. Part of God's plan. Now, the Catholic Encyclopedia, referring to a time around the Protestant Reformation, wrote, The doctrine of apocatastasis, viewed as a belief in universal salvation, is found among the Anabaptists. These are people who felt that uh, being baptized as a child doesn't count. That's our view as well. You have to be infant baptism; infants can't repent. The doctrine was formally condemned, and First, the famous anathemas pronounced at the Council of Constantinople in 543. It also should be pointed out that the Protestant reformers, like John Luther and uh, John Calvin, Martin Luther and John Calvin, they also condemned Apocoptastasis, and they also condemned the Anabaptists. But this is a view that the true Church of God has had throughout history, and according to Roman Catholic scholars, they know church type people have had this view throughout the time. Now in the 19th century some Sabbath keepers published a periodical called The Messenger of Truth, which quote, vigorously promoted the age to come doctrine until the paper closed in 1858. In the 19th century there were people such as James Stevenson who taught a version of the age to come and a fair chance. In the 20th century the old Worldwide Church of God taught an age to come after the millennium. God will offer salvation to all who ever lived. Now that is what now I'm going to quote Second Corinthians one three from the New Jerusalem Bible. That is what quote the merciful Father in God who gives every possible encouragement teaches in his word. Every possible encouragement you think that does not include give, giving everybody an opportunity for salvation either in this age or the age to come? And by the way, the age to come comes after the second resurrection. The continuing church of God believes that the Bible clearly teaches that God will ultimately offer an opportunity for salvation to everyone. So that it's salvation through Jesus. because it says in Acts 4.12, there's no other name under heaven by given to mortals by which we should be saved. That's from the New Jerusalem Bible. Oh, no, the EOB, sorry. Eastern Orthodox Bible. The continuing Church of God believes nearly all people who ever lived, probably over 99.9%, will accept this opportunity and thus gain eternal life into the kingdom of God. And relatively few who will not accept it will not be eternally tormented, but be put out of their misery. So, theologically speaking, we're annihilists, such as, which is consistent, by the way, with it, it says in Malachi 4.3. But we're not like those who teach the stasis they all have to be saved we say all oh, we'll will have an opportunity to be saved and most will be because most will accept it Again we teach people who have an opportunity either in this age if you're called now or in the age to come I hold up these booklets which have a lot more scriptures to go in that in more depth than I will be able to do in one sermon. matter of fact I think I did at least seven or eight maybe ten sermons based just on this book. So there's a lot of information on on there for those who want to know the truth. Of course, if you can't be bothered to learn the truth, um, you might want to pray about that. Now, the Church of Rome officially changed its mind on Apococostasis in the 6th century. Yet, many amongst the Eastern Orthodox still accept it. But we, the continuing Church of God, maintain the original Catholic view of Apocytostasis. And again, more details are in this book. Now I'd like to talk briefly about the Ten Commandments. Uh, in his letter to the Philippians, uh, Polycarp repeatedly taught Christians should keep the commandments. So I'm going to read from there. We know that Jesus and the Apostles kept the Ten Commandments. And so here's what Polycarp wrote. Talking about Jesus, He who raised Him from the Father, He who raised Him, being Jesus, from the dead, will raise us up also, if we do His will and walk in His commandments and love what He loved. Keeping ourselves from all unrighteousness, covetousness, knowing that God is not mocked, we ought to walk worthy of His commandment and glory. Neither fornicators, nor effeminate, nor abusers themselves of mankind, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Nor those who do those things inconsistent and unbecoming. The virgins also must walk in blameless and pure conscience. If a man does not keep himself from covetousness, he shall be defiled by idolatry and shall be judged as one of the heathen. But who of us are ignorant of the judgment of the Lord? Now, Polycarp denounced Marcion of Pontus, who essentially taught that the Ten Commandments were done away, just like many modern Protestants do. We go into that in depth in two different books. Uh, one is, one I've said on Protestantism, which I, if you're Protestant, or you still think you're Protestant, I, and, but you believe you believe the Bible, I strongly, strongly urge you to please read this. You can read it on your knees. Pray fast. Ask God about it. Read it. This will hopefully enlighten you. You'll get to see what the Bible really teaches, and so you won't be swayed by false traditions. And here's a much shorter book. You can see the, the thickness on the Ten Commandments, which also goes into some people's arguments against them, as does this. I mentioned Melito of Sardis, who was a Gentile, and he taught the commandments, uh, and uh, he mentioned it was a sin to break them. Uh, Theophilus of Antioch, I mentioned before, he uh, taught about the Ten Commandments. He called them the Ten Heads, including the Seventh-day Sabbath. Now, there's an anonymous document that's been called the oldest complete Christian sermon that survived. It's also known as uh, Second Clement. It teaches that Christians must keep the commandments to be God's people. Now, Clement of Alexandria, different Clement, uh, he numbered the Ten Commandments the same way we in the continuing Church of God do it, which is the same way as the Eastern Orthodox do it and most Protestants do it, although the Lutherans and Roman Catholics do it a different way. We in the Continuing Church of God keep them that way. The Church of Rome changed its numbering of them after being influenced by Augustine of uh, Hippo in the 5th fifth century, fifth century. We in the Continuing Church of God advocate striving to keep the Ten Commandments, and we warn about those who try to reason around them, which is one of the reasons the subheadline of this book is The Ten Commandments. The subheadline is The Decalogue of Christianity at the Beast. The Beast will violate the Ten Commandments and want you all to violate them. So, more intended commandments can be found in this free book. Now, what about titles for church leaders? Let's go to uh, Ephesians 4. Um, this would Ephesians 4 11. This would be from the New Jerusalem Bible. Paul writes, And to some, his gift was they should be apostles, and to some prophets, and to some evangelists, and to some pastors and teachers. Now, let's go to Philippians. Philippians 1, verse 1, New Jerusalem Bible. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ, Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with their presiding elders and deacons. Now that's from the New Jerusalem Bible. Now that's translated by the Dewey Reigns Bible, those last couple of words, as bishops and deacons. Uh, I want to read this one from the N-A-B-R-E translation. This is going to be Acts 20:28. 20, Uh, The N-A-B-R-E is also a Roman Catholic accepted translation. Acts 20.28 Keep watch over yourselves, over the whole flock, which the Holy Spirit has appointed you overseers, which you tend to to church of God, which he acquired in his own blood. Romans 16.1 You don't have to go there, but this is the New Jerusalem Bible. I commend you by our sister Phoebe, a deaconess of the church, I'm going to go to Romans 1623, New Jerusalem Bible. Again. Greetings to you from Gaius, my host here, and host of the whole church. And in uh, 1 Timothy 3 2, it calls uh, Timothy, God's minister. And in 1 Peter 5, we to have to go there and talk about elders. So in the continuing Church of God, we use the titles Apostles, Prophets, Evangelists, Pastors, uh, teachers, uh, presiding elders, deacons, uh, bishops sometimes, overseers sometimes, deaconists, host, minister, and elders. Okay, those are titles of scripture. These are titles from translations from uh, Greco-Roman Catholic uh, sources, and we use uh, those titles uh, today. Now I'd like to read something from Appendix A, of the Eastern Orthodox Bible. Seen in the New Testament literature itself, it's an indisputable fact that the earliest Christians used the term bishop or overseer and presbyter or elder interchangeably. Okay, and uh, so there were some titles used, and again, we use the same ones today. Now, what about other titles like archbishop, metropolitan, or patriarch used for the clergy? Well, they're not found in the New Testament. Uh, nor are they found in the more widely used Greco-Roman translations of the New Testament. Now, thousands of years ago, the uh, pagan emperors used the title Pontifex Maximus, but that's also not from the Bible. Tertullian, who's a respected church historian by the uh, Greco-Romans, wrote around uh, the end of the 2nd century, 1st part of the 3rd century, to Pontifex Maximus, that is, the Bishop of Bishops, issues an edict, I rem- remit to such as have discharged the requirements of repentance, the sins of adultery and fornication. So what he was doing here, he was uh, 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 being funny by trying to call Bishop of Rome Pontifex Maximus because he allowed people to be unrepentant. And uh, back that time, the leaders of Rome were not calling themselves Pontifex Maximus or, or, or Pope. And while God does tend to have one main leader at a time, uh, we don't see titles in the Bible like Bishop of Bishops or anything like that. Now, a version of that title, however, was given to the Roman Bishop of uh, Damascus by uh, uh, the Roman Emperor Theodosius. This is, uh, so let me go into that. It says, Imperial Gracius, Oh, I'm sorry, that was the Latin. Let me just read from the English. Imperial emperors, Gratian Valentinian Theosius, sent out a decree to the people, declares the high pontiff uh, Damasus, and by Peter, Bishop of Alexandria, a man of apostolic holiness. So, it was in 380 that the Bishop of Rome was formally given the title high pontiff. Sometimes, uh, rendered as a Supreme Bridger or Supreme bridge Builder because that's the word uh, pontifex means. Now according to the Roman Catholic sources uh, it was Damas's successor who picked up the title Pope. This is from a book I bought at the Vatican actually called The Popes. Syriacus, 384-399 was the first to assume the title of Pope from the Greek Papa meaning Father. Yet According to Matthew twenty-three nine, I'm going to read this from the Dewey rheims Bible. None of you call it, and, and call none your father on earth, for one is your father who is in heaven. This is not talking about your human father. This is talking about religious titles. So again, these are not titles that uh, we we tend to use. We don't use the uh, the non-biblical ones. And nor did the early uh, churches of Rome, the original Catholic Church, did not use terms such as Metropolitan Archbishop or uh, uh, Pope or Pontius Maximus. And the exceptions of these titles and other changes might be part of the reason why some of the people called Politians started to call the Roman Catholic pontiff the Antichrist in the 4th and later centuries. Trying to decide how much more I want to go through here. Um, well, let's see if I can pull this off. We're going to go into how the, the, the dress of the clergy. In the 19th century, uh, uh, Car- Card- Roman Catholic Cardinal Newman wrote We're told in various ways by Eusebius that Constantine, in order to recommend a new religion to the heathen, transferred outward ornaments to which they had been accustomed to their own. Uh, the use of temples these they dedicated to particular saints and then they use things like branches of trees and incense and candles and all those kinds of things and holy water, holy days and seasons blessings and uh, sacerdotal vestments the tonsure uh, turning to the east etc. and various chants. These are all pagan origins he says and so these were used uh by the people at Constantine's time to try to make the heathen outwardly supposed to be Christian. These, However, they weren't part of the original Catholic faith and certainly not something that the Church of God endorsed, the true Christians endorsed. Interestingly, the Roman Catholic historian uh, William Durant wrote, When Christianity conquered Rome, the ecclesiastical structure of the pagan church, the title investments of Pontifex Maximus, the worship of the Great Mother and the multitude of... Con- 14 deities, the sense of supersensible presence is everywhere, the pageantry of their ceremony passed like maternal blood into the new religion, and captive Rome captured her conqueror. So basically, he said the pagan religion flowed right into the Greco Roman churches and that they were all comfortable with that. Now, regarding vestments or clothes, the Catholic Encyclopedia teaches the liturgical vestments. Have by no means remained the same from the foundation of the church to the present day. Great difference worn by the, t- the pre-Constantinian period and following centuries. In the era before Constantine, priestly dress did not differ from secular costume in form or or in ornament. The dress of daily life was worn at the offices of the church. When you see Church of God leaders throughout history, we dress like people did of the time. They say, well, you're wearing a suit and tie. Well, I wear one to work and I've done that forever. Uh, now, of course, everybody doesn't wear suits and ties anymore, but it's still a common thing. Uh, the uh, reality is that these were changes when they started to have all these different vestments. As far as the white collar, by the way, although some say it was invented in the 19th century, it was uh, worn by uh, Roman and Eastern Orthodox priests much earlier than that, and Egyptian priests wore some version of that collar thousands of years ago. And a collar uh, was also associated with the sun god Mithras. And it said Mithras wore the uh, Phrygian cap. Rays of light emerged from Mithras' head much like a halo. His choke collar is a serpent. And we don't wear priestly collars. And this is something that was not done by early Christians, and we don't do it now. But after uh, the time of Constantine, it's got adopted, the collar and that Phrygian cap. And we don't believe that this is something Christians should be doing. We also uh, do not promote uh, clerical celibacy, nor do we like the original Catholics. We don't incorporate icons like crosses as part of our worship. And early Christians didn't have anything like holy water. Uh, I'd like to read from First Timothy chapter three, starting verse one, regarding the reality that, uh, in general, bishops, and elders were mainly supposed to have a wife. As so it says in First Timothy three, starting verse one, for the Dewey Rames, faithful saying: If a man desires to be a, a bishop's office, he desires a good work. It behooves therefore a bishop to be your ir- Irreprehensible, the husband of one wife, sober, wise, c- c- comely, chaste, man of hospitality, a teacher, not given a wine or fighter, but modest, not a quarreller nor covetous, ruling over his own house, having his children subject with charity. But if a man does not know how to rule his house, how can he have care of the church of God? And also from the Dewey Range, we're going to go to Titus chapter 1, verse 5 through 7. I'll give you a moment to get there if you'd like to follow along. uh Titus 1 verse 5 for this cause I left you in crete that you should uh, reform the things that are wanting and should ordain priests by cities as I appointed you if any be without crime the husband of one wife having faithful children not in the acquisition of riot and were not obedient for bishop must be without crime a steward of God not proud nor angry nor given to wine or striker filthy covetous of filthy lucre. Now, the word uh, translated as priest, by the way, means, is presbyter, it just means elder. And bishops are allowed to be uh, married. In Eastern Orthodox circles, while their uh, priests can be married, their bishops can't, and I think that's obviously in conflict with Scripture. Now, Polycrates, a church of God leader from Ephesus, late 2nd century, confirmed that the clergy could be married. As he wrote, talks talked about uh, Philip, one of the 12 apostles, he had uh, 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 ver- uh, virgin daughters. and Polycrates says, go to the tradition of my relatives, some of which I've closely followed, for some of my relatives were bishops, and I'm the eighth. And my relatives always observed the day when people put away the leaven. Well, it probably couldn't have been from a line of bishops if they were all celibate and they weren't uh, uh, married. And we know that Philip had at least three daughters. And pretty much everybody knows that Peter had a, a wife, and uh, even uh, uh, as did others. Now, the Greco-Roman saint, Hippolytus, noted in the third century that celibacy was not required. It says that about the time of this man, I'm just talking about Callistus, bishops, priests, and deacons who had been twice married and thrice married began to be allowed to be retained and have their place in the clergy. Now, so where did this idea of of celibacy probably come from? At least partially got to do with Mithraism. Mithra was a chaste god, and his worshippers were taught reverence for celibacy. Now, the Catholic Encyclopedia, by the way, acknowledges that celibacy was not a requirement for the original Catholic Church leaders. It says, turning out the historical development of the present law of celibacy, we must begin with Apostle Paul's direction that a bishop or deacon should be the husband of one wife. These passages seem fatal to any contention that celibacy was made obligatory on the clergy from the beginning. So obviously it was not. Here's something else in the Catholic Encyclopedia. Celibacy became an ideal for the clergy in the East gradually as it did in the West. In the 4th century we still find St. Gregory uh, Nazianzen's father who was a bishop of Nanzio says, "Living with his wife without scandal," and then eventually he says, "Over time, uh, they go over this. There was arguments about you should have celibacy or not." But the reality is, the idea of uh, clerical celibacy or the fact that the leaders of the church were not to be married was simply not an original practice or belief of the original Catholic Church. Um, I may as well finish with this little part here. There's something called a tonsure, where you shave your head. And uh, a lot of monks and some others do this. As it turns out, Mithraism had its monks and nuns, and uh, as Tertullian admits, and the tonsure was done in honor of the sun. To be shorn of hair is doubtless a sign of asceticism, but it's a form of, of, of tonsure. Now, the uh, Catholic Encyclopedia, it says that tonsure is a sacred rite instituted by the church by which a baptized and confirmed Christian is received into clerical order by the shearing of his hair and the investment with the surplice. Jerome disapproves of clerics sharing their head. Towards the end of the 5th and beginning of the 6th century, the custom passed over to the secular clergy. In Britain, the Saxon opponents of the Celtic censure called it the tonsure of Simon Magus. Now, the way cutting your hair this way, by the way, specifically in conflict, I'm not going to go there with Leviticus 21, verse 5, as well as Ezekiel 44, verse 20. And while some people say, well, those prohibitions were done away, Jesus' and his apostles uh, did not try to look like the pagan priests. The original Catholic faith did not have this tonsure idea. Now, as far as Simon Magus goes, some now considered to be early supporters of the Roman Catholic Church condemned him and his followers for using religious statues, revering a woman, the doctrine of immortal soul, incantations, mystic priests, claiming divine titles for leaders, accepting money for religious favors, preferring allegory and tradition over many aspects of scripture, and having a leader who wants to be thought of as God or Christ on earth, and divorcing themselves from biblical Christian practices considered to be Jewish. And we, the Continuing Church of God, hold to the original faith on all of those particular matters. So, for more information about the beliefs of the original Catholic Church, and what we, the Continuing Church of God, hold to, and what the true Church of God has taught throughout history, I, again, will recommend you consider reading the book we have at www.ccog.org, Beliefs of the Original Catholic Church. Do not rely on tradition... Don't get yourself locked in traditions that are in conflict with Scripture. Believe the Word of God. This is Dr. Bob Teal for the Continuing Church of God.